Welcome to Safety Net, a patient safety podcast with news, trends, and ideas from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claims. The rapid deployment of virtually delivered healthcare during the pandemic has gained the attention of patient safety leaders. The Academic Medical Center Patient Safety Organization has just released a document that offers guidance to clinicians to optimize care and prevent risk. The AMCPSO convened its members from multiple institutions using the confidential and privilege protections of the Federal Patient Safety Act. It enables members to collect, analyze, and report patient safety data and to exchange learnings in a protected setting to improve patient safety and the quality of care. An example of such a convening is the Virtual Care Task Force, organized by the AMC-PSO. The Virtual Care Task Force comprised an interdisciplinary group of clinicians from community hospitals and academic medical centers. The task force met over the course of six months and produced a guidance document called Patient Safety Guidance for the Virtual Visit, Managing Risk in a New Care Setting. It is available free online to the public and covers a range of issues from the first decision to engage in a virtual visit with a patient to the follow-up needed to close important loops and even quality improvement measures. Dr. Philip Champo is a member of the AMC PSO Virtual Care Task Force, and he joins us now to discuss some of the recommendations in the document. Dr. Champa is an internist at Atrius Health, a large group practice that serves the Boston area and other eastern Massachusetts communities. Dr. Champa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. When we look at how telehealth is going at the moment, how would you describe the upside and the downside generally? Of course, this is in the context of the COVID pandemic. Sure. So big picture, um, telehealth is really helpful for both patients and providers and sort of establishing another way that people can receive care. In the past, as an internist and as a primary care physician, I sort of was able to offer people a limited range of things if they presented with various uh, issues that they needed help with. Most of the time, it was come to the office. And what telehealth does, big picture, is it sort of flips that around and gives us the option for me to reach patients where they are. And one of the things that's interesting is, um, you know, it's an understated problem how much time and, and sometimes money it takes for patients to travel to come see us in the office. Uh, it can really add up, particularly with people that have chronic disease. Telehealth is just one way that I can cut through that and help reduce things like no-shows and people who sometimes avoid needed care because it's just too difficult to come in physically to see us. See, the biggest downside right now is that it's still very new. I think for a lot of us practicing um, in medicine and also for a lot of patients, 2020 was the first time that they ever received care uh, through virtual means. And there's still a lot to learn. It's a new level of care. And we're all still trying to figure out how to best uh, be able to do that for every scenario that people might be presenting for. So this year, our, our, our challenges really are around how do we take what we were able to get started so quickly last year and make it enduring. So really build systems um, that integrate well with the other types of care that we deliver and build off what we learned to make things better, uh, make things safer, and make the experience truly excellent. Just like in in person visits, a lot of the risks uh, come in the follow up, closing various loops. Do you think that's uh, the most uh, risky part of this? You know, I think there's two elements. 
And, you know, the first is just thinking about telehealth as a level of care. And so, you know, the first thing we want to get right is to make sure that when a person is scheduled for a video visit, that that's the right mechanism and the right level of care for that need. And so, you know, I think I always counsel folks that are doing these visits, the first decision you should make is whether or not that visit is suited for the video medium. And you really want to be able to deliver the standard of care, regardless of if it's on video or if it's in the office. And so you have to take into account what the person's talking about. You also have to take into account things that you may not think about, such as how good is the video quality? How good is the audio quality? Are those sufficient for me to do what I need to in this visit and make a, an adequate medical determination for the need? So that's the first bucket of risk. And I think the second bucket is in the closing the loop. So no one thinks about really what happens after they walk out of the office when they see me. They go to the front desk, they make a follow-up appointment, they may be handed an after-visit summary that helps to wrap up the visit, and they may be connected with the lab that's downstairs or radiology, which is downstairs. Those things are totally different on a video. And uh, I think for a lot of folks, especially folks that are doing it for the first time, they may end their visit and not be sure how those things are completed. And so it's really important to communicate that in the visit and to have some systems baked in after the visit to make sure that those necessary steps are covered um, and that you know patients are getting the care that they need afterwards. So the Academic Medical Center, PSO, recently published a guidance document. You were on the virtual visit task force, and this is designed to help with care in the virtual setting, how would you highlight the recommendations and how they might be used in practice? So the recommendations were a great primer in general on telehealth. And looking at it again, I think that it's a really wonderful resource for health systems that are still working to set this up or looking to make improvements. It covers a lot of ground and I think in a very clear way uh, for how you can think about uh, issues around safety and experience and the setting of a telehealth program. I also think it's very helpful for individual practicing providers, and we've certainly shared it with all of ours, uh, because I think it helps to highlight some of the things that uh, maybe gaps in people's own recollections or own experience that they want to shore up, such as uh, website manner and other things that they might be thinking of as they do visits. So we would really think about this, um, encouraging all of our providers to review it and really digest it. And we know that this is going to be an area that there'll be more learning to come as we uh, continue to synthesize our experience from last year. Yes, it is very comprehensive. It walks us through before, during, and after a virtual visit. A lot of the recommendations seem to focus on the structure and the organization of the visit. Why is that so important? There's so much of medicine is about structure. And when you really take a step back, I mean, much of what we do every day is rooted in, um, in, in that structure. It really helps to provide a, a way to, to manage um, with a lot of complexity in, in a medical visit. And so relying on the, the typical things, I'm going to take a history, I'm going to do a physical exam, I'm going to make an assessment, I'm going to make a plan. These are the ways that we manage um, our day. And uh, it allows us to like put other cognitive load on sort of the other complexity of the medical and personal things that we're facing every day. So when you, when you sort of blow that up and make it virtual, um, the first thing that you find yourself thinking about is, well, what's this new structure that I have to, to use to manage the visit? And so I really like the way that the recommendations are phrased because it's helping 
to reinstitute a different set of structures around um, the telehealth visit. So that as a clinician, you can get that part right, get in a rhythm that's going to set you up for success, and then just pay attention to the person that you're taking care of. That's why I think it's really important. And as we said, a lot of providers have not, and staff have not done this in the past, or at least before 2020. Um, so obviously the staff needs to adapt. Right. It was, an, it was an adaptation for virtually everyone in our practice. You know, we had been piloting telehealth for a couple of years, but uh, I would say that, you know, um, 95% of our practice did their first telehealth visits last year. And that was true also of staff. And so, you know, you think about uh, approaching a visit uh, on a video screen, and most of us have had experience doing that in our personal lives and other settings. But when it comes to the medical visit, the first question is, well, how do I do this? How do I get a blood pressure? How do I um, talk to a patient that's having difficulty connecting? Um, how do I wrap up this visit and connect them back with care? And these are things that, uh, you know, we try to provide some structure around with guidance, such as in, in the report, because, you know, there's no sense in trying to uh, everyone solve those problems independently. So for staff, uh, the challenge is really learning things in a couple of levels. The first is, um, you know, what things are appropriate for a telehealth visit? I have a person calling to schedule an appointment. Is this something I should offer them a video visit for? Or should I make them come into the office? That's the first bucket of learning. Uh, for things like medical assistance to our staff that help us generally get through sessions and through visits and support patients in different ways, they had to learn about uh, technical aspects of telehealth and how to help people that might be having trouble connecting to a visit. What is website manner and why is that important? So website manner is sort of how you adapt to the etiquette and um the rapport building that normally you would do in an office for a remote setting. Uh, and much of it is the same. So being able to communicate with someone, whether it's on screen or next to one another, um, takes a certain set of skills and those apply. But there are some special things about connecting with folks on video that are important to be cognizant of. And, you know, the first is just the setting. Um, you know, making sure that not only is your setting private and the patient setting private, but that that privacy is signaled in the visit. So, for example, being able to see a door is closed behind you um, on the video screen is helpful for patients to see. Making sure that your background is not distracting and professional is a helpful place to start. Um, there's other things, too. The patient can't see everything that you're doing. They can see your face. And so typically... We recommend that if you're going to look at another screen to, say, enter a prescription or review something in the chart, that you talk through what you're doing to the person so they understand that you're not checking your email, you know, that you're, uh, that you're still doing patient care and trying to help them with something on a different screen. Um, avoiding distractions is important. And so closing down things that might interfere with your concentration, uh, such as your email or muting notifications on your phone become important. Um, and these are some of the things that add up to a good um, web presence. One other thing that's important that I thought was really interesting in the report is thinking about silences. So if I'm sitting with someone in the office and I pause and allow for some silence, that can be very therapeutic in the office. But on the video, um, someone might misinterpret that as either me not 
paying attention or for the video freezing. So you have to really signal with a lot of, um, a lot more um, gesturing or uh, being cognizant of your language uh, when you're on the video than you are in person. And uh, how do some of these concerns change with the specialty when we talk about pediatrics, behavioral, or other sort of populations and virtual health? Yeah, so each of them has a different wrinkle. Pediatrics, I think, is important because so much of virtual care is history-taking. It's really getting back to the fundamentals of medicine where um, you want to take a really good history, listen to the person you're interacting with, and and help figure out what the right um, medical care is from there. For kids, you know, they're not always able to give that level of history depending on their age and other factors. And so you're relying on Parent history as you normally would when you see children, but you have a little bit less of a physical exam capability on video than you would in person. So that's really one of the challenges for pediatrics. There's also some challenges around children that are older in the adolescent range and how do you ensure privacy if they're calling from home about sensitive topics. For behavioral health, um, the considerations are around safety, particularly if a person is in crisis how are you able to manage that crisis remotely? Although I will say a lot of behavioral health clinicians that, that, that I work with have been comfortable doing that because they've done it for years on the telephone. So having the video component is actually helpful, more information than they've had in the past. And I'd say the last area um, actually that uh, I think is an important consideration is elder care um, and some of the issues around, uh, around how to do video visits with folks that are homebound. And, you know, normally you really need the help of family. And there's some, there's some special considerations when thinking about, um, again, a person that may not give a great history, but triangulate that history with family members who may be present in the home as well. Uh, based on your own experience, do you think that uh, colleagues and administrators have some blind spots or misunderstandings about virtual care and the risks that are associated with it? Yeah, I think that a lot of folks especially the folks that aren't doing this care regularly, um, often approach it with this air of mystery. So are very focused on the technology and how it's so different than the types of interactions that one might have at, in the office setting. And I think that as you get into it and start to have more experience actually doing the visits, you become really aware of how similar it is to what care is like face-to-face. And I think that's the main the main thing that's different about people that are doing this every day and folks that may be approaching it for the first time, a lot of the risks are very similar to the types of risks I face every day in the office as a clinician. And if I'm paying close attention to um, making sure the level of care is right for the person I'm taking care of, paying attention to how I'm communicating and making sure to uh, set this, the table up correctly so that care that's recommended after the visit is followed through. Um, really it becomes a lot less uh, mystifying, a lot more like everything that I'm doing all the time. Thank you, Dr. Philip Champa. Dr. Champa is a member of the AMC PSO Virtual Care Task Force that recently published patient safety guidance for the virtual visit. This can be found on the CRICO website at www.rmf.harvard.edu forward slash virtual visits. I'm Tom Agello. 
thank you for listening to Safety Net, a podcast of news, trends, and ideas from Crico in the Harvard Medical System. Find all of our podcasts at www.rmf.harvard.edu slash podcast and subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcast, and then rate and review the show to help others find it too. 